Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is Thursday, and I am back in Wisconsin after spending a few days out in Colorado, which means I'm no longer on Mountain Time, and we are, well, we have a lot to catch up with. And we are joined by one of our good friends, Tim O'Brien, senior columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, also a political analyst for MSNBC and author of Trump Nation, The Art of Being the Donald, a biography published in 2005. So first of all, happy Thursday, Tim. Thank you, Charlie. It's 2022 and we're still talking about Donald Trump. Do you feel like you're caught in this doom loop of time warp? that we are still talking about this guy. Fortunately and unfortunately, comically and tragically, the man doesn't change. You know, he's been a toddler since he was um, three, and he, he hasn't changed. He's, you know, he's still a toddler today. He's just become a more dangerous toddler as time has gone on. But I think there's been a roadmap for almost everything that he's done. It's just happened in, in, in more and more crucial forums than it had in the past. I think this is a central insight into Donald Trump is that it was always there. He has not changed. He has not morphed. There's not a new Donald Trump. There is not. It is the three-year-old throwing the tantrum who has now become the, what, 70-year-old president of the United States throwing tantrums. I mean, and, and there is that through line. And people sort of not taking his danger seriously at turn after turn. You know, there, there's, uh, I think it's Alan Bullock's biography of Hitler, and I am someone who's been very hesitant to draw the mm-hmm. Trump-Hitler comparisons because I think it can be facile and alienating. But I said to a friend in 2016 that one chapter in that biography, it talks about Hitler's rise and how German industrialists and conservatives in German politics thought that Hitler was this cartoon character and they were going to control him and he'd be a right. useful idiot for them. And one of the final lines of of one of those intermediate chapters in the book is, and they all were about to learn what it meant to try to ride the back of a tiger. Mm -hmm. And and that line has stayed with me since Trump began campaigning in 2015. You know, the inability of his supporters and enablers to really accept the fact that they were enabling and supporting something that was extremely dangerous to democracy and and kind of civic dialogue and and everything else that we've seen fractured during the Trump era. And of course, we're seeing the same thing now. I mean, and nothing has changed. Even, you know, as we learn more and more about his behavior. So we're going to get to that in a moment. So if you could indulge me for a moment, along these same lines, uh, Liz Cheney spoke last night at the uh, Ronald Reagan Presidential Library, part of the, uh, the Reagan Library's a very, very high profile series, A Time for Choosing. And she was one of the, uh, a series of, of speakers. And, you know, I mean, I like, what, what can I tell you about Liz Cheney that people don't already know, except that, you know, two things. Number one, I mean, she held nothing back on this speech. You know, people thought that she was going to gloss over this. Absolutely not. And then number two, despite her really scathing denunciation of Trump, all the reports that I'm reading are that Cheney was greeted warmly by this audience, which gave uh, extended standing ovations to her now. Okay. So there may have been, you know, some Democrats that showed up at all this. She may be getting this uh, strange new respect, but Tim, I want to listen to a a portion of this remarkable speech, just a portion of it. She makes it very clear that she is still a conservative Republican. You know, she still believes deeply in limited government, low taxes, national defense, you know, know, family, all of these things. And then she pivots 
to saying, okay, so we may disagree on politics, but she talks about the threat we pose now. Let's listen to Liz Cheney and we'll talk about it on the other side. But I also know that at this moment, we are confronting a domestic threat that we have never faced before. And that is a former president who is attempting to unravel the foundations of our constitutional republic. And he is aided by Republican leaders and elected officials who've made themselves willing hostages to this dangerous and irrational man. Now, some in my party are embracing former President Trump. And even after all we've seen, they're enabling his lies. Many others are urging that we not confront Donald Trump, that we look away. And that is certainly the easier path. One need only look at the threats that are facing the witnesses who've, become, who've come before the January 6th committee to understand the nature and the magnitude of that threat. But to argue that the threat posed by Donald Trump can be ignored is to cast aside the responsibility that every citizen, every one of us bears to perpetuate the republic. We must not do that and we cannot do that. Ronald Reagan said it is up to us in our time to choose and to choose wisely between the hard but necessary task of preserving peace and freedom and the temptation to ignore our duty and blindly hope for the best while the enemies of freedom grow stronger day by day. No party and no people and no nation can defend and perpetuate a constitutional republic if they accept a leader who's gone to war with the rule of law, with the democratic process, or with the peaceful transition of power, with the Constitution itself. As the full picture is coming into view with the January 6th committee, it has become clear that the efforts Donald Trump oversaw and engaged in were even more chilling and more threatening than we could have imagined. As we have shown, Donald Trump attempted to overturn the presidential election. He attempted to stay in office and to prevent the peaceful transfer of presidential power. He summoned a mob to Washington. He knew they were armed on January 6th. He knew they were angry. And he directed the violent mob to march on the Capitol in order to delay or prevent completely the counting of electoral votes. He attempted to go there with them. And when the violence was underway, he refused to take action to tell the rioters to leave. Instead, he incited further violence by tweeting that the vice president, Mike Pence, was a coward. He said, quote, Mike deserves it. And he didn't want to do anything in response to the hang Mike Pence chance. It's undeniable. It's also painful for Republicans to accept. And I think we all have to recognize and understand what it means to say those words and what it means that those things happened. But it, the, the reality that we face today as Republicans, as we think about the choice in front of us, we have to choose because Republicans cannot both be loyal to Donald Trump and loyal to the Constitution. At this moment, damn. So, Tim <laughs> O'Brien, 
You're, you're, what a remarkable woman and what a remarkable moment in time a month before she is likely to be defeated in a Republican primary. I mean, it just it just captures so much of this moment we are in. And it gives me goosebumps. I, you know, I'm uh, I, I am probably a, you know, a corny Irishman, but I believe in the notion of public service. And I admire any politician of any stripe in a moment of great crisis who can stand up and articulate and defend their values. I'm, you know, I'm reminded of the famous line when Lyndon Johnson was confronted with by his staff that if, you know, if he passed the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, that the Democrats would lose the South permanently. And he replied, well, what's a presidency for? Mm. And he knew he was putting his political career and the party at risk in to do the right thing. And I think you have Liz Cheney, a conservative Republican, standing up in the maw of Trumpism, facing it down, uh, putting her own career, political career on the line. It, it certainly seems she's going to get voted out in Wyoming. And not only time and again bats back all of the, the fascist garbage coming out of MAGA, but also articulates it in just fundamental, beautiful, and everlasting ways. And I think this speech last night will go down as one of the great political speeches in, in American history. I would like to think so. You know, and, and, you know, she makes you think a lot about the whole, you know, quality of political courage, what political courage entails, why it is so vanishingly rare. Uh, my colleague Mona Charon has a piece in the Bulwark today about uh, Cassidy Hutchinson, and, and she makes a very interesting point. You know, uh, up until relatively recently, it just required political courage to oppose him. And yet, We've seen how this has morphed, right? I mean, you know, you know, after he crushed the Chris Christie, Jeff Sessions, Ted Cruz's, everybody, you know, caved in. But, but you know, now uh, it it requires more than just political courage. It requires physical courage. I mean, the threats against Adam Kinzinger, you know, the threats against Cassidy Hutchinson, this atmosphere of menace. And the thing about Liz Cheney is that she's just so unflinching. She doesn't flinch at all. And you would think she would just shame all of the men in her party. But, of course, that's now an old story. Right. Well, and, you know, and, and Benny Thompson as well. I frankly think everyone on that committee, I think that the dynamics are different for Liz Cheney and Kinzinger because they are standing up against their own party. And in a way, I think that makes them even more potent spokespeople now for the issues that we all should value in a nonpartisan way. But I have just, I have been inspired and am in admiration of her clarity and her real sense of purpose. And, you know, and it's a very Occam's razor thing here. She is stating as it is, you either are for the Constitution or you are for Donald Trump, but you can't be for both. And the choice you make will reveal who you are. And she also, you know, made at some length, I don't have all of it, you know, I mean, I have it in the transcript of my newsletter, but, you know, she talked about, you know, addressing the fact that she still disagrees with her Democratic colleagues on a lot of policy issues. And she's looking forward to the time when we can go back to all of that. But she does focus in on the choice before us right now that, yes, we may disagree on taxes. We may disagree on a lot of fundamental issues, but you have to make this decision on where do you stand on this existential moment? She said, you know, we're going to disagree, but we have to reject toxicity. We're going to, we Republicans are going to have to reject the worst kinds of racism, bigotry, anti-Semitism that characterize so much of our politics today. So she is making this, this appeal to Democrats. Okay. You may not like the way I voted or many of the positions that I take, and I have not changed, 
But right now we are at the edge of the abyss. And I think that that's that fundamental clarity that she has that's so bracing. It's amazing. And and the notion that despite different policy and ideological differences, that we need a certain structure, the rule of law and democracy around all of us, because that empowers us to live in a safe and civil way with one another. And when you strip the republic of those two things, which is what Donald Trump and his supporters are trying to do, you have violence, chaos, and danger. And that's a problem, obviously. I mean, one of your distinguishing characteristics is you've been sued by Donald Trump, right? And you beat him. That is correct. We happily stripped the bark off him like an old tree in litigation. All right. So after Tuesday's remarkable testimony in front of the January 6th committee, you had a fantastic column about, uh, again, going back to who Donald Trump is, what he always wanted to be. And you wrote, once upon a time, long before Donald Trump began fabricating narratives about his prowess and personal history, he wanted to be a movie producer. Trump wanted to be in the movie business. I mean, when he grew up, he wanted to be an old time Hollywood producer like Cecil B. DeMille. So tell me about this. Trump has an extremely cinematic understanding of life and his own universe. He sees everything through the lens of someone who's directing himself as the star and producer of his own show day in and day out. And how does he appear and how does it play and how do you get the center stage? It is one of the most powerful motivating factors in his life because absent that, he is just an ignorant thug who loves cheeseburgers sports and sex. And then it sort of ends after that. He has no interest in other issues. And I think, I think when you come to an event like January 6th and and they were plotting, we now know that they were plotting uh, a coup uh, months prior to that event. Trump played a very senior role in helping to orchestrate it, if not being the sole or leading director of it. And they come to the day where he's going out onto the ellipse to encourage his followers to stage a mass protest and disrupt the certification. And lo and behold, his own lawyers and members of the Secret Service won't let the show go on in the way he likes. And and we have this extraordinary moment from her testimony. Some of the facts have been disputed, but no one is disputing that he got into the presidential limousine after he gave that speech and wanted to be brought to the Capitol so he could join the mob in storming the building. Um, And this is after he was already warned days prior to January 6th that the protests would be violent, that he knew the morning of January 6th the people were arriving armed, and he actively tried to permit them to enter the ellipse and go to the Capitol armed. He fomented a violent insurrection, and he wanted to be part of it, and he was irked that that narrative he had built of, Mm -hmm. I won't take no for an answer, got disrupted by other people. They, they were showstoppers. They were getting in the, they were getting in the way of his play. And, and he was incensed and enraged because that's who he is. If he doesn't get his way, like Bam Bam in the Flintstones, he goes nuts and starts breaking things. And I don't think he cared about the fact that this was a, an assault on democracy or that it was an assault on the Constitution. He saw the entire thing as an assault on his own narrative of being a winner and never losing. Well, you and I talked about this uh, before the 2020 election. There was really nothing surprising um, about the fact that Donald Trump would never acknowledge that he lost, right? He, he can never be a loser. Donald Trump cannot lose. He can only be betrayed or cheated, right? I mean, th- this is deeply embedded in his DNA. Anyone who thought that Donald Trump 
would graciously concede defeat clearly knew nothing about the character of Donald Trump, which is ne- which is not a secret, correct? Certainly, I think in some of the, our discussions, and I did um, other TV shows and, mm-hmm. and podcasts in the sort of electoral period between November and January in 2020 and 2021, I said, if people think that he's not going to try to burn the house down after losing this election, they're sorely mistaken, because that's who he is. He would rather see everything burn than say, I lost, I was inadequate, people don't like me as much as I thought. And, you know, in the column you cited, you know, it still is sort of seared into my memory. He and I were on his jet watching Sunset Boulevard, and there's this, the famous scene where Norma Desmond, who has been um, diminished in the in the talkie era, she's no longer the star she was, gets up and stands in the projector and says, you know, have they forgotten who I am? These idiots, these producers, I'll show them. I'm a star. These idiot producers, those imbeciles, haven't they got any eyes? Have they forgotten what a star looks like? I'll show them. I'll be up there again, so help me. And, and during that moment, Trump leans in over my shoulder and he goes, isn't this incredible? This is such an incredible scene. And I think that's him. No one should ever forget I'm a star. And if they do, they do it at their own peril. And I think for him, I'll be a star again means I will be in the White House again, come hell or high water. And I think that's the other thing we have to be really wary of right now. So he looked at Norma Desmond differently <laughs> Most people, we look at her as this sort of desperate, clinging, you know, almost pathetic, tragic figure, wow. right? He goes, yeah, that that's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you know, Norma Desmond and Donald Trump, drama queens, you know, at the end oh, of the day. Oh my God, this yeah. is so good. It really is. Well, you know, going back to this, the fact that, you know, he he cannot a- ever accept defeat. I'm, I'm, I'm. The more I think about this, the more, you know, all of this focus on the big lie. Does he believe he lost? Does he not believe that he lost? Um, that Those are almost irrelevant. And then you please feel free to push back on me because the, the whole, you know, election fraud, big lie is just a pretext for Donald Trump's refusal to acknowledge that he lost. And what he's done in terms of the political culture is he has convinced millions of people, whether they believe the lies or not, that they should never accept the peaceful transfer of power if it means transferring power to people they regard as evil, as their enemies. And that's kind of an interesting thing. I mean, it's a dangerous development here that if we have millions of Americans that just decide, okay, so this whole democracy thing is fine as long as we don't let Democrats win because they are so evil, they will destroy the country. So any means necessary um, are acceptable to prevent that from happening. That's a whole different thing from believing the lie or not believing the lie. Are you following me here? I, I just, am I just, the, the Focusing on electoral fraud misses the point, but it also explains why they've never really bothered to, in a coherent way, explain what the big lie is. I mean, you still have, you know, Mike Lindell out there. Every time you push back, well, this isn't true, this isn't true, it it, it morphs, it changes, it's, it's very evanescent. Because it, that doesn't really matter. It's keeping Donald Trump's ego on the one hand, and then this ideological fervor that you know the, the fate of the country is decided by you know you know whether or not we are able to keep these evil, God-hating, America-hating Democrats out of power. And 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 it that works, Charlie. It's working. I know. And and uh, and you know Fox News is the media enabler of that tactic. Watching the way that Fox responded to Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony 
it was essentially a denial of fact. They honed in on the dispute over whether or not Trump lunged at, at his Secret Service right. detail in the steering wheel in the car. But then actually went well beyond that. Tucker Carlson was saying, well, no one was armed at the ellipse. That's just factually wrong. And they're calling it an insurrection. And, and, and he had a new verb. He said nothing was insurrected. Um, <laughs> but, but he's lying to his audience about what occurred because it allows them to stay in their own bubble of an alternate reality and to deny facts in order to allow themselves with, I guess, what they feel is a clear conscience to, uh, to continue an assault on democracy. And, and, and as you say, I think that gets transformed into the Democrats are big government, woke dangers to good old white America, and they have to be stopped. So let's talk a little bit about, and by the way, when Tucker Carlson lies to his uh, his audience, I mean, let's be honest here. You know, that's fan service. He's he's giving them what they what they're asking. <laughs> totally. I mean, I'm I'm totally. I'm sorry. I'm so you know, we're in this time warp where this now seems so long ago, but it was just like last week, right? That we had the the big day on the Justice Department. Well, what happens here? Yeah. And how close we came to Donald Trump installing this seditious toady named Jeffrey Clark as the acting attorney general, as the nation's top law enforcement officer. And in your column, you you point something which I find absolutely fascinating, which is Trump's peculiar magnetism for grifters. What is that? It, it is like, in, in my mind, I've, I've always thought it was like a huge magnet that just like attracts these filings of all the worst people in the world. They, 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 they gravitate toward him. And you really saw that playing out with, Jeffrey, the Jeffrey Clarks and the other people who are like willing to push any sort of bizarre conspiracy theory for, for Donald Trump. So what is that peculiar magnetism? Well, I think they see him either as someone who is a certified star and they feel brighter in his orbit, which is nuts. That's just that's just people who are too lazy to actually look at the record. Um there's other people, I think, who see him as a useful idiot, and can they can further their own aims through him. I would put Bill Barr in that category. Mm-hmm. Um, but his central insight, Trump's, is he has this reptilian sensibility about people's weaknesses. And he is very good at spotting yes. people who want to latch onto him for whatever reason and corrupting them or bullying them till they either bend to his will or escape as quickly as and most people don't choose to escape. Um, there's, a, there's people who are independent enough at some point to pull the ripcord. I think you saw that in Mattis. I think belatedly with Mattis. You saw it with Bill Barr, way too belatedly with Bill Barr. But then you had people like Jeff Clark who just hung in there because he was an avenue towards rapid, what they wanted in terms of their own rapid ascent in their own lives. And so you have this nutty moment where Jeff Clark is telling Trump, I've written this letter that will order all the states to look into possible frauds, or at least select swing states to look into fraud if you make me AG. It was just that craven and that transactional. And undoubtedly, Trump and the people around him knew that Jeff Clark was that kind of a person. And that is one of the many things that makes him unfit to hold the most powerful office in the world is because it's not just him. He surrounds himself 
with C-minus players who are craven and ignorant. So you called up Michael Cohen, his former personal attorney, who had, I thought, some interesting insights. He said, you know, I believe that everyone in Trump's inner circle are all fundamentally missing something in their lives. For me, Cohen told you, I had just come off a series of health issues when I was asked to join the Trump organization. I had missed the excitement. There's an excitement in being around the celebrity of Donald Trump. He has this great ability to make those around him feel like they're part of that moment, even if it's not for a good thing. It's intoxicating until things go bad with Trump. Then they go really bad. Ultimately, those who are in his inner circle end up having their lives turned upside down. And for what? For who? And so, as you point out, there's this long parade of people, you know, who have indulged their inner, inner Donalds once the former president tapped them on the shoulder. Some of them, this is you, you know, some of them were already steeped in the dark arts. Roy Cohn, Roger Stone, Steve Bannon come to mind. Others went rogue once Trump showed them the way. Jeffrey Clark counts as one of those. You know, and you just think of of these people who are the legislators, you know, the people who requested the pardon. I mean, that's another group, you know, Andy Biggs, Mo Brooks, Matt Gates, Louis, Louis Gomer, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Scott Perry. What a yeah. rogues gallery of mediocrities, clowns and bigots. I mean, good grief. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene in what other alternate universe would someone like her even have a national platform? But for the fact that she is an unhinged MAGA loyalist who will say anything that Trump needs her to say to defend his worldview and and his crimes, essentially. Okay, so I just got back from the Aspen Institute, the the, the Aspen Ideas Festival, and I'm as I'm speaking to you, I'm unclear about the the rules about what we're supposed to be able to say about what happened. So, without naming a name, I was on a panel, the future of the Republican Party. With a, a very prominent non-Trumpian conservative, you know, a guy, I, I respect him a great deal. Okay? I'm not going to mention him, but he's an establishment figure. And he was arguing that he thought I was too negative about the Republican Party because basically take Trump out of the picture and everything is fine. And the Republican majority will be swept into office by this, you know, because of the failures of the Democrats. And, you know, they they have the wind at their back. And, and I actually turned to him at one point and I said, you know, you know, keep in mind this Republican Party, this is the Republican Party of the Matt Gates, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Lauren Boberts, and, you know, maybe Herschel Walker and J.D. Vance. You really think that this is going to end well, I mean, honestly, because at this point, it is hard to just simply pry off Donald Trump from what the Republican Party has become. Those things are not reversible easily, are they? They are not reversible, and it begs the obvious question to me is then, well, what does the Republican Party and contemporary conservatism stand for in the Trump era? Um, it, you know, classically, it was lower taxes, less regulation, and a strong, hawkish foreign policy. There has been a very bent and undermining conversation around how to handle Russia's invasion of Ukraine that probably in, a, in eras past would have had a, an easy bipartisan approach because Trump has thrown that into weird relief and, and askew, frankly. Remember, the, the Republican convention in the summer of 2020 did not have a platform. There were, it was a I, platform I did bring this free. Up. Yeah, whatever he wants. You know? yeah. yeah, and that doesn't make for good policy. And, and I think that if we have the wind at our back and we're sailing along towards what? And I think the only thing... I think agreement among moderate and, and hard right conservatives era is that you can dismantle the federal government. And if you need a sledgehammer to do that, Trump is our sledgehammer. 
But even if you say, okay, then you get that out of this, what do you put amid the rubble? What do you replace that with in order to have a smoothly functioning democracy and a vibrant, competitive economy? Because you can't do that without a healthy administrative state. Well, and I also think, I mean, in, just in terms of lack of a governing authority, I mean, in governing philosophy, I think you you have it there. By the way, there was a major Supreme Court decision that came down, which we'll get to in, in a moment. Okay, before we get to that, though, I have to, you know, go back to a question that I'm sure you have thought about many, many times, which is how has Donald Trump gone this many years with this many frauds, this many scams? and never faced serious criminal charges. And of course, you know, talking about this now with the prospect that he might in the future. Tim, you have watched Donald Trump. You know his uh, shaky relationship with the truth and with business ethics. He's never been criminally charged for many years. And I'm going to ask you the question, but in this context of having spent the last five years with a lot of wish casting people saying, well, the walls are closing in on him now. The Mueller investigation is going to get him or SDNY is going to get him or that Manhattan DA thing is a big deal. And of course, as we know, nothing came of it. So having taken a deep breath, what do you think right now about the prospects of criminal charges against Donald Trump? Um, I think they're very strong at the federal level if Merrick Garland shows the appropriate steel and big if if, uses the the legal artillery of the Justice Department to take action on what the January 6th committee has already shown to be a a pattern of criminality that's multifaceted. Uh, Apart from that, I think Georgia right now, I think there's a strong case for electoral fraud in the state of Georgia. The only other, I think, needy investigation that's out there that could result in charges is, is a civil fraud probe in, in New York, the New York AG financial probe that won't result in criminal charges. It may put him out of business and have substantial financial penalties. And, you know, the, the larger question of why has Trump gotten away with this for so long is, is one part of it is that, is that white collar crime in the United States is prosecuted and looked upon differently than blue collar crime. And, and it's just easier for white-collar criminals to ex- escape the net of the law. That's been true for a long time. Um, they can hire attorneys who are more skilled at this. They can wait out prosecutors. And it's just very hard, um, I think, to engineer successful prosecutions like that unless the evidence is overwhelming. Um, secondly, I think he never had the kind of stage and impact prior to becoming president um, uh, that he has now. And, and I think his, his, his disrespect for the law and willingness to push boundaries was seen as harmful only to his business partners and no one else in the past. I don't agree with that perspective. I think employees and shareholders were hurt by his actions, but no one chose to prosecute him back then. Now it's apparent what his threats are. Well, and yes, and, and they're growing, if anything. So, I mean, I understand the argument, um, and I'm thinking this is what's going on in Merrick Garland's mind or in his office, which is that it is a radically unprecedented thing to indict a former president of the United States. So what precedent does that create? The stakes are huge. What happens if they lose the case? What happens if he's exonerated? All of those things. And these are weighty, weighty considerations. But I guess, and I'm, I'm guessing you you agree, I think that right now, the precedent created by not holding him legally accountable is just as grave. It, because what it will say is that 
there are some people above the law and there are no actual consequences for serious criminal behavior as long as you're the president of the United States. I mean, that strikes me as just as powerful and dangerous a precedent as charging him with all the political fallout that that would entail. I couldn't agree more. And, and I would refer to Justice Roberts's ruling in the tax records dispute and, and Trump's lawyers, in which the Supreme Court said, Trump has to turn this paperwork over. It is a legitimate part of this investigation. And Roberts went out of his way to say no one is above the law in the United yeah. States, including the president. He staked that flag out. But there's, I think, other people on that court, notably the awesomely conflicted Clarence Thomas, who don't agree with that. And I think, again, we're, we're in this place where we're going to say that, that the president can do whatever he or she wants. And, that, and that's just dangerous. So in the minutes we have left, we have had an incredibly consequential Supreme Court term. It's hard to get your head around all the things that they have done. We had, of course, you know, the overturning of Roe versus Wade. One could certainly argue that the greatest success of the Trump presidency was his you know, seizure of control of the U.S. Supreme Court. I mean, from the point of view of, of many conservatives like the Federalist Society, they feel vindicated. They feel that all of the things they have done are justified because you now have a 6-3 conservative majority, which is not showing the kind of restraint that quote unquote conservative justices have shown in the past. I and mean, I thought it was really interesting that Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, you know, staked out a sort of a centrist position on the Dobbs case, uh, saying we can uphold the Mississippi law, but we don't need to take a wrecking ball to all of these precedents. No one joins him. <laughs> he was absolutely alone. You have the majority. Uh, overthrowing these major precedents. And um, today we have a new ruling down and wanted to get your thoughts on, on that. Uh, again, 6-3, the Supreme Court has dramatically limited the EPA's power. Um, this is another major case. Can you just tell me about the implications of this? Because I know you're like way ahead of the curve you know, than I am on this one. So West Virginia versus the EPA, the, the core issue here is whether or not the federal government should have rulemaking authority around emissions in a world in which climate change is an existential threat. And then what's extraordinary about this ruling is they're ruling against rules from the federal government that haven't even been implemented. The Biden administration said, we're reviewing Obama-era rules and regulations around clean power plans, and we would like you to wait until we put those rules into place, and then they can be litigated at that point. And the court said, nope, we're going to go ahead and make a ruling here anyway. And, 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 I, and I think the heart of their ruling is that you are delegating rulemaking authority to federal agencies that properly should be in the hands of the Congress, and that that violates separation of powers and checks and balances, et cetera, et cetera. I think defenders of rulemaking bodies would say expertise in government matters. And it certainly matters when you have big existential crises, whether that's a public health pandemic or climate change. I think there's a lot of cases in which, you know, federal regulations should be scrutinized and businesses often do know better than the regulators imposing rules upon them. But there are also certain issues that transcend that kind of back and forth battle on small fry issues. And climate change is one of those. Nonetheless, this court is saying the administrative state essentially at its core is flawed. There's no situation in which it should be allowed to exercise the kind of powers it does. And we're going to begin chipping away at that. And that's what this ruling is. 
is a flag being planted around that issue, I think. It is, and it's a major decision. And let me just take the sort of the other point of view on all of this, that, you know, I, we described some of these other decisions as somewhat radical. This strikes me as being very much in the conservative legal tradition to say that Congress has abdicated uh, or abrogated too many of its uh, its responsibilities and its authority to non-elected administrative bodies. I mean, there, there is a principle there. This decision was written by Justice Roberts. So this is not an Alito-Thomas thing. They, and, and, you know, one of the things that really has struck me uh, on, over the last several decades is the willingness of Congress to give up its power. I mean, wasn't that one of the major insights of, of James Madison that you would have separation of powers because people would be jealous of their power? And United States senators and congressmen have been falling all over themselves to, you know, be treated like potted plants on a variety of things, particularly in this in, in this instance, where really since the Roosevelt years, you have Congress passing sweeping pieces of legislation, vague or with big blanks left in them and said, but we're going to leave the details to these non-elected bodies. One, and you know, again, I, we're just, this just came down this morning. And, and maybe it's naive to suggest that one upside would be for Congress to actually now have to actually do its freaking job as, as opposed to simply outsourcing it. This is a job Congress can do. I mean, I think yeah, I, I think this gets to the issue of expertise. We all talk about wanting to have a more efficient and informed government that can create policy that is rational and productive. You know, Britain has a civil service that transcends parties and is available to whoever comes into power in Parliament as a sort of research body available to whoever is legislating. We well, don't have that in state. the U.S. Yeah, but that's the deep state. That's the right? deep. Well, <laughs> that's the deep state. But you know, is and, and and so do we not want expertise in our policymaking apparatus? And 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 I and I, this is such an interesting moment because I do think it's a reaction against the New Deal. And the New Deal administrative state came into being to deal with a crisis. And then I think in the decades that followed, there was some understand, understandable pushback against the notion, well, the crisis has passed, and there's wholesale rulemaking here that feels divorced from the reality I'm living in. And I don't think that Democrats have done a good job of explaining why some of those rules are really useful and being flexible around the ones that aren't. But I think the idea that an administrative state whole cloth gets in the way and is ill-founded, I frankly think is nuts. And I do think these kind of rulings from a conservative court may be based in principle, but I think they're going to have damaging economic and social results. It's going to make us a less competitive economy. Yeah. And to your point that this has been something that's been stewing since uh, the New Deal is, I think, an important insight that this is taking place with a Trumpian court, but this has been something that's been a push-pull for decades now. Okay, so um, in the area of political speculation, how do you think the row is going to play out? The, the row overturn is going to play out. Now, I know that there's tremendous pressure in among the Democrats to codify Roe versus Wade. Uh, uh, President Biden has now come out for scrapping the filibuster for an abortion carve-out. I, I don't see that necessarily happening. And let me tell you what my instinct is right now is that we don't know yet how this plays out because it has our world has been turned upside down politically. And you have lots of voters who have never actually thought about this seriously because they didn't believe that these rights would ever be actually curtailed. So suddenly we are in a completely new environment. And I'm not sure that polling has caught up with 
all of those transformations. What, what do you think at the moment? I agree with that 100%. I mean, I, the way I'm sort of trying to get my head around is I think it will be the Dobbs ruling plus yeah. gun violence versus the impact of inflation. Yeah. And I think inflation was riding high until you had the Uvalde murders and then the Dobbs ruling. I think those two issues have really galvanized liberals and Democrats around the dangers of not having a response to core social needs. And reality makes it obvious. Whether or not that's enough momentum to trump the real world economic pain average Americans are feeling with prices escalating, you're starting to see some softness in that inflation growth and actually a downturn in numbers that some predicted. So I think those forces are going to be on voters' minds coming to the polls in November. But I don't think we know. I don't think that polls right now are accurate gauges of either party or either constituency. And I think it's going to be interesting. I don't think we'll know till November. No, I don't think so either. And I agree with you that, you know, that's really the the clash. In terms of mobilizing younger voters, which Democrats always seem to, you know, have this fantasy that they're going to be able to do, if abortion, guns, climate change, and legalized pot do not mobilize young voters, I don't know what would be. I mean, in terms of a suite of issues saying this is on the ballot, these are, you know, it, it is really going to be a binary choice on all of these issues. My other question is, is whether or not and I hate to use the word messaging, I'm, I, so I apologize in advance, whether Democrats have figured out what their messaging is going to be on abortion, they, they seem to be very conflicted about that in terms of like recognizing that they need to push back against what's coming, but um, they often will fall into rhetoric that makes it easy for Republicans to say that they are the extremists, talking about abortion with no limits. Now, again, whatever the, I'm not arguing the merits, I'm just talking about in terms of public opinion, you know, when you're talking about overturning Roe, big majorities, you know, opposed overturning Roe, right? But big majorities are not going to be with you if you support abortion with no limits. So that's a tricky tricky thing for these guys, isn't it? Well, I don't, I just think mechanically and from a process standpoint, the, 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 the contemporary Democratic Party has not been as good as Republicans at seizing on emotional messaging that clearly, it's clearly defined in terms of the self-interest of the people who identify with that party. Yeah, the Republicans right. are much better at that. I think one of the reasons they are is it's a more homogeneous party. And Republicans are more inclined to get in line when they're told to get in line. And and Democrats are, you know, it, it can be herding cats when you've got a very multifaceted constituency, which the Democrats have. So the task is more challenging. But even given the t- challenge of the task, the Democrats don't understand that a lot of this is a nice fight. And the Republicans do, you know. And when the Democrats are on the steps of the Capitol singing God Bless America, while the Republicans have already successfully stacked the Supreme Court and are running roughshod over the legislative process in Congress. It's like, it's great to sing a song, but you really need to engage on messaging and street fighting, political street fighting. I don't mean violent, but political street fighting. And, and I don't, and these are wake up calls, I think, for the Democrats, because you now have huge legislative changes that are seismic. And, and they're the result of long-term Republican planning, methodical planning, and message engineering 
And, and both of those things have been flaws, I think, in the Democratic Party. Tim O'Brien, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast as we were talking. I was thinking, we got to get you on more often. I'm just, just It's a privilege to be on, Charlie, and it's you. always fun. I enjoy our conversation. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast, and we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again.